Oh my gosh, you guys clearly are not on spring break. All of Revolution Church is. That was awful. So I'm going to do that again. What's up, City Life? Okay, a little better. Thank you. That's good. Um, well, welcome. If you're visiting us for the first time tonight, I feel like I should start here. I am not the senior pastor. Um, I am, my name is David Godwin. I'm the uh, student ministries pastor. And so I am filling in for Pastor Fred tonight as he is preaching in Suffolk, um, filling in for uh, Pastor Justin. And uh, he went on that trip to the Dominican Republic and is coming back. And they arrive tomorrow, which I'm excited about. I keep like phantom texting the people on that trip, like pulling my phone out of the pocket to check in on them. And then I remember they're in the Dominican Republic and they won't get my text. So I'm excited that they're coming back. Um, so you guys are stuck with me tonight. I hope that's okay. Um, and I, I'm, I'm super pumped for this word that I, I believe that God has given me tonight. And so we, we've been in a series called Good News. And uh, I don't know about you, but I could use some good news. Anybody could use some good news out there. I love, I'm, I'm not a news junkie by any means. Um, but I love listening to NPR radio, right? I love getting my fill of the news as I'm driving around and, um, you know, from place to place. So I, I can keep tabs of what's going on in the world. But, um, you know, after a while, I got to turn the dial to, to something different because there's a lot of bad news out there. Even like the weather forecast is depressing. Why is it winter right now, right? I thought the groundhog came out. Didn't he come out, right? Isn't it supposed to be spring? So um, yeah, there's lots of bad news out there. So we've been in a series called Good News, giving us a little bit of relief from the bad news uh, that, that we encounter on a daily basis. And, uh, and the awesome thing is that it's not just any good news, it's the good news, right? Pastor Fred, he's been talking uh, about that very thing that the gospel, if you break it down, means God spell. It means good news. So tonight we're talking about that, not just any good news, but the good news. And, uh, and, and week to week, we've been kind of layering on, adding layers to what, what does that look like? What does that mean? How does that affect our lives? This gospel, this good news, how does it affect me? And so I'm just excited to add another layer uh, to that onion of good news, if you will. Shrek reference. Okay. So, uh, cool. Well, uh, the, the title of my sermon tonight is called Wages, if you're taking notes, and all the cool kids do, so you should. Uh, but the title of my, my sermon is Wages. And uh, we're going to start with a, a verse that probably is familiar with, uh, to lots of you, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And it says this, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your free gift, God. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you that we can worship you uh, in such a powerful way as we got to experience tonight, God. And it's all because you've given us your grace and eternal life for free. God, I pray that you would help me to preach this message, your message and not my own, God, and help us to hear what you have to say in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Awesome. So uh, if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, you've heard this phrase, you've heard this verse before, I'm sure, the wages of sin is death. And it's not surprising to you. It's not new to you. Um, and I would say that this, this concept is not surprising or new even to people who aren't Christians, right? Even to people who uh, are outside of our culture. We understand that 
wages, well, well, I understood anyway, practically speaking in my life, that uh, wages, anybody out there, have you ever been a server, a waiter, or a waitress, right? Your wages, what you earn, your salary, your paycheck, a lot of people don't understand this, is directly attached to the tips that people give, right? A lot of times people think, uh, anybody never been a server? Wow. It is my personal conviction that every person in America should be a server. At least, yeah, all the servers are like, yes, preach, right? Because it's hard work, first of all. And second of all, literally your wages, what you make, your paycheck, how you bring home the bacon, it's directly affected uh, on a couple of things. One, the how well you do, right? If you uh, do well, then you, your wages are good. You get a good tip. And if you don't do so well, uh, if you miss the mark a little bit, then you uh, don't get such a great tip. But it's also dependent upon the goodness and the common sense of the people that you're serving. Uh, so sometimes that's not always, those things don't always match up. You're, you're, uh, it's not an objective evaluation. Um, I've had plenty of people, I've served plenty of people before who will come up to me and say, you are an awesome server. You are so great. One of the best we've ever had. And literally give me 50 cents and like drop it. Like it's $500, like boom, like there you go. And, um, yeah, like people don't know. It's not, it's not quite the objective system as you would wish that it would be. And so I've been stiffed a lot of times when I didn't need to be stiffed and didn't deserve to be stiffed. Um, but there was one time where I knew that I missed the mark, right? That I knew that I deserved the wages of a zero dollar tip because I missed it bad. Um, so I was kind of new. It was within the first year of my serving experience, and uh, I was probably around 17, 18 years old, and I felt pretty confident in my abilities at that point, right? I, I was pretty friendly, comfortable with having conversation with, with my customers, and, and I, I was pretty good at memorizing their orders and, and doing all of that stuff. I even felt pretty confident in holding a tray, of food and drinks. I felt good about that, right? So I will never forget this. I had a table of about six. It was a family and they were crammed into this little uh, booth. And, um, and so I'm walking up to the booth, just confident as can be, right, with all of their drinks on it. And as I reach over to give the person, far the, 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 the person farthest from me the first drink, I kid you not, I swear the devil was there behind me and just like knocked them all over because not only did one or two or three, all of the drinks that were on the tray fell over onto the tray, onto me, onto the table, onto the customers, onto, it was crazy. It was like a horror scene, right? And so, yeah, my wages that day, oh, it's no surprise were zero dollars for that table, right? They walked out, leaving me no tip. And I was cool with that. I, I was happy with that. I understood why, right? This concept, it makes sense to us. The wages of sin is death, right? If you miss the mark, that's what sin means. If you miss the mark, if you don't do such a good job, then you don't get the payment. But sometimes the gospel, it can seem a little backwards to us, and it could be a little um, outside of, of what we can understand in our own human uh, perspective because it's written and it's understood from God's perspective, right? We understand that the wages of sin is death, but this might shock you. So too is the wages 
of righteousness. Some people are looking at me like, what? Excuse me? Say prove it. I'll prove it. Thank you, wife. I'll prove it. All right. Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says this, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Even our righteousness, when we stack it all up and try to present it to God, even our righteousness amounts to not much, right? When compared to his righteousness, it's nothing but filthy rags. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, it says it this way. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Say all, all of the commands. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, It is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. What it's saying is if we've tried to gain righteousness, if we we try to gain eternal life by our works, by how hard we work, uh, by our goodness, by our righteousness, we will always fall flat that no matter how righteous we think we are, how many of the commandments we think that we've kept, there's always going to be a gap between our righteousness and God's. So we're left with this question then, right? If the wages of sin is death and the wages of righteousness is death, then how do I I, uh, avoid death? How do I gain life? This is my conclusion. This is what I think and and find in the Bible, if eternal life can't be earned, then it must be a gift. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where we started, it says, for the wages of sin is death. We know that, right? But, turn to the person next to you, say, but. It's awkward. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Eternal life is something that we cannot earn. It's not a wage. It's something that can only be given. And the giver is only ever going to be God. In John chapter 3, I don't even have to put this on the screen. We can all probably quote this right with your eyes closed, whether you've been in church or haven't been in church. John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For this is how God loved the world, that he, what? He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The gift of eternal life is given to us, packaged up in the person of Jesus. And it's given to us by and through God's love. We were... um, this month at a, a first Friday event for the CYPers, which are the college young professionals who, the, the super attractive people who sit up here in the front row, just saying most of them are single. 
So we have this thing called First Friday. It's the first uh, Friday of every month. If you're like college age or like right out of college, right, young professional, um, you should come come to Pastor Fred's house. We we meet up together, and it's been great. We've uh, have some guest speakers uh, lined up to come and speak to us. And this last month, we had Amy Kimball, none other than Amy Kimball, come and share her knowledge uh, and her yeah. Whoop whoop. Anybody who's a fan of Amy Kimball. Um, come and share her knowledge and her insight on how to study the Bible. And one of the things that she said is that, hopefully this doesn't come as too much of a shocker to too many people in the room, right? The Bible was not written in English. Whoa, right? The Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek, right? And so when you're not just reading the Bible, but when you're studying the Bible, it's important that you study the original language, that you look at what are these words actually in the original language? And so you can, you can do that. There are tools out there that help you do that, even online and everything. But, uh, but in John chapter 3, this word love is a special word. See, in the English language, we have one word for love. It's the same word we use for, you know, how much we love hot Krispy Kreme donuts and how much we love our wives and our children, right? It's the same word we understand by context that, you know, the, the severity, the intensity of that love is maybe a little bit different. But in the Greek, there are several words for love that are used. And so the word that's used here is agape. And so us super deep, like spiritual, cool Christians, we know, we know what that word means, right? Like we probably, some of you probably have it like tattooed or on a t-shirt. It's my wife's email actually address. Um, agape. So if I were to ask you what agape means, what would you what would you say? What have you been taught that agape means? Anybody who knows? Wow, y'all scared. Love. Yeah, love. Unconditional love, JJ said. Who's ever heard that? That agape means unconditional love. Hands all over the place, right? Yeah. And that's absolutely true. Agape, the word for love that's used in this passage of scripture is absolutely means that. It means unconditional love that uh, when God loves us, he loves us unconditionally. Um, and we love that, that uh, translation of the word agape, unconditional love, because we love warranties, right? We love lifetime guarantees. We love to know that we can't break it, right? When God gives us love, I can't mess it up. I can't sin too bad or, or, or lose it or, 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 or uh, you know, ruin it. God's love is unconditional. It's absolutely true, but there's a part of the definition of this word agape that sometimes we don't look at and don't pay attention to. See, unconditional love, it explains to us how, um, how we are able to not ruin the, the love of God, right? But charity is the other definition, the other translation. And charity expresses to us, explains to us how the love of God, the agape love of God is given and received. So charity, our understanding of charity is kind of cheapened by our culture, right? When we think of charity, we think of like throwing some change, throwing some change in a bucket on your way in and out of, you know, food line, right? That's charity to us. But this is what charity actually means. If you were to look it up, charity means giving someone something they've earned or that they have not earned, did not deserve, and cannot pay back. Charity addresses how God's love is given to us. We know that God's love for us is unconditional, that 
uh, he loves us despite how bad we are. But did you know that God loves us with no regard for how good you are? He loves us with no regard for how good you are. You can't earn it. You can't pay God back for his love. The kind of love that's used here, it's saying for God so loved the world. It means God looked down and saw a people who couldn't earn eternal life in their own right. He saw a people who, who, who couldn't, uh, if they tried, uh, provide eternal lives for themselves, couldn't bridge the gap between his righteousness and theirs. And so he charity loved, he gave everything, his one and only son. And that is how the gift of, uh, of eternal life is presented to us. But we're a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of charity. We like charity, the concept of charity, when we're the ones on this side of the bucket, right? When we're the ones throwing the chains, change in. We don't like charity. We don't like to talk about charity when we're on the receiving end. In order to receive charity, you've got to be someone, uh, you've got to be in a condition whether it be sickness or poverty that prevents you from providing for yourself. So for us to say that God charity loves us, we, we don't like to talk about that much because it means that, that he loves us. When uh, we're in a position that, that we can't gain that love, we can't earn that love ourselves, by ourselves, in our own right. We, our discomfort for charity, our discomfort for being on this side of the bucket, right, it isn't a new thing. Uh, it's the reason anybody in here ever argued with someone about, um, you know, like paying the bill at dinner. You like bend over backwards and do secret CIA covert mission to find the waitress and like, hey, yo, let me give you my card. He's going to want to pay. Don't let him, right? You do all this stuff because you don't want to be on a charity case, right? You don't want to be on the other side of charity. You want to be able to earn it yourself. That's how it looks for us. And it's not a new thing. Uh, Paul writes to the uh, Christians in Galatia, the original, some of the early Christians in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Do you know you can receive a gift but never use it? right? Someone can buy you a pair of shoes, but if you never stand in them and walk around in them, then what good are they going to do you? And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, stand fast in the freedom by which Christ has set you free. He's made you free, but you've got to use it. You've got to stand fast in that thing. Act like you're free, right? And then he continues, he says, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And a cursory reading of that. I've always just kind of thought of it, and people have preached about it a lot, that that yoke of bondage he's talking about is sin. So Christ frees us from our sin, right? And don't go back. Don't be enchained to that. Don't be enslaved to your sin. But if you look at the context, it's really talking about the law. Paul is talking about uh, uh, don't be chained again. Don't be held in bondage to this thing in you, this pride in you that says you don't want to receive a free gift of freedom. You want to work for it. He says, don't, don't fall for that. Come on, stand fast. Use the gift of freedom that God's given you and, and don't try to earn it anymore, right? Don't be held in bondage anymore. It's the reason why God gave you the gift of forgiveness, salvation, and his grace in the first place. 
We'd rather work and earn right standing with God ourselves than accept a gift of love free of charge. It's what too often keeps us from experiencing true freedom as Christians. So I have a question for you tonight. Are you working for what's free? Are you working for what's free? It might be a question that generally speaking, just hearing it, you might not be able to answer, so it's cool. I provided a checklist for you, make it a little bit easier. And the first question is this, do you try to convince God you're worthy of his love? Every time you do something good, every time you read your Bible or come to church or help a little old lady cross the street, right? Like, are you looking up to God being like, you see this, right? Like, I'm, I'm good, right? We're, we're good I'm worthy of your love. Or maybe do you compare yourself to your coworkers or other Christians you know and you convince yourself and therefore try to convince God that, hey, at least I'm better than that person and God must love me more than them, right? Do you try to convince God that you're worthy of your love? Because if you do, you might be working for what's free. What about this question? Do you feel shame more than you feel acceptance? In moments like tonight when we're worshiping God and we're in, the, in his presence, do you feel ashamed more than you feel acceptance? Is what's going on in your head during a worship set while Chris is up here singing? Are you thinking about all the times you messed up in years past? Are you thinking about how you messed up last night? Are you thinking about how you messed up this morning and don't deserve to be in his presence? Because if you are you, you, you might be trying to work for what God has given you for free. The beautiful thing about salvation and about God's grace is not just that he forgave us of our sins, but that he's given us access to his presence. Come on, and that's only possible because of his acceptance for us and of us. The last question, do you feel like God's favor is attached to your works? Are you thinking that every time something good happens, it's because you did something awesome, right? And God was watching and keeping score. Or every time something bad happens, it's because you did something bad and God was watching and he was keeping score, right? And the Bible talks, don't get me wrong, and let me throw this disclaimer out there. The Bible talks about this principle of sowing and reaping. There are consequences to our decisions, to our obedience and disobedience, right? There's fruit for, for what you put out there. And so there are consequences, but those consequences do not include God, God's love, his acceptance, right? His grace, if you're a Christian. Those things are not uh, contingent upon, you know, how uh, good you are, right? God's grace is a free gift. His love for you is a free gift. And it's not something that you have to work hard to keep trying to earn. You know, one of the things that uh, people can think that they can say around me because I'm not a uh, server anymore uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this, um, this before, this strategy for getting good service, right, at a restaurant. I've heard this a few times, and little did the person know I've been a server, and I'm like steaming out of my ears. But I've heard this. They've said, you know, if you really want good service, what you can do is you can put a stack of dollar bills on the table. Surely no one has ever done this in here, right? But you can put a, a stack of dollar bills on the table, and every time the server messes up or comes back to the table a little bit late— 
uh, or, or doesn't refill your drink quite fast enough, you can just slide one of those $1 bills back in your pocket and they, they lost that one, right? And so by the end, they got a little, people are shaking their head like, what? Are you serious? No, this is the thing. I've heard this more than once before, right? People say that this is a strategy for getting good service. You just kind of take away their tip every time they mess up. Some of you guys, when you think about God, that's how you see him. You see him as this grumpy old man in a booth, looming over the table of your life, just waiting for you to mess up so he can take away some of your blessing, so he can take away some of your love, so he can take away some of his grace and put it back in his pocket. I have news for you tonight. Come on, God is not a reluctant tipper. He's not. The people who made up that strategy, it's not because they want to get better services, because they really don't want to tip, right? God wants to give you not just a tip. He's not a, not a reluctant tipper because God's not a tipper at all, right? God has given us everything. He's broken the bank to give us his all. But here's the thing. In order to receive the gift, you have to perceive the need. You guys can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. We're going to read verses 15 to 17. We're going to look at this story together of, as an example of Peter and Jesus. See, I delayed on that so y'all would actually pull out your real Bibles. It's up there in case you need it. So this is the story of Jesus restoring Peter, and I can give you a little bit of context. So basically Jesus is showing up to people. He's, he's already died on the cross and has risen again, right? And he uh, keeps revealing himself to people randomly, like walking through walls like Casper and, and appearing in locked rooms or, you know, like, uh, I don't know, walking uh, uh, with these people down a, a dark alley. And after they leave, they realize, oh, wait, that was Jesus, right? Jesus is basically freaking people out with this new resurrected body. And, uh, and so this is one of those incidences where Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection and he's, uh, he's actually made them breakfast, which is pretty nice of Jesus, right? And they're, they're in their boat. They come up to the shoreline, and uh, Jesus has breakfast with them. And uh, after breakfast, it says in verse 15, Jesus asked Simon, son of Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. This is one of those instances in Scripture where you've got to make sure you do your research because if you just look at it on the surface level, it kind of seems like Jesus is badgering Peter, right? It's like, geez, give him a, a break. And why do you keep asking him the same question over and over again? If you do a little research uh, in the original language, you can see that there's actually two words for love being used in this conversation the first two times Jesus asks, hey, Peter, do you love me? He's using the word agape that we talked about earlier. 
in John chapter 3. He's saying, Peter, hey, do you agapeo me? Do you love me with a God-like love? Unconditional, selfless. And Peter responds in English translation, yeah, I love you. But in the Greek, he was saying, I phileo you. Phileo, it means brotherly love. It's where we get the word, or where, where the word Philadelphia, the city Philadelphia, city of brotherly love comes from, right? So Peter responds, he's saying, yeah, I love you, but I, but I love you like in a man-made, kind of like this level down here, my human love. And so Jesus asks again, hey, Peter, do you agapeo me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you like a brother, like a friend. And ever since I understood the, that there were two uh, words going on here, two different uh, words being used for love, I always wondered why the heck didn't Peter just say agape, right? Like I had a friend, I used to always go to her house in middle school and her parents were uh, stricter than mine. And so they had all kinds of rules. And one of their rules was if someone says, I love you, you have to say it back. And her dad was always really good about saying I love you at like the worst possible times when you didn't want to say it, right? So after he grounded her, sent her to her room, he'd be like, love you. And she'd be like, love you too, right? Surely parents in here, you don't know anything about that. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, Peter, hey, why don't, why don't you just say it? You don't have to mean it, right? You can just say, yeah, Jesus, I agape you too, right? Why don't you just say agape, in order to really understand that, you have to understand this moment in history, because it is a moment in history within the context of Jesus and Peter's relationship. If you turn to John chapter 13, and this time I actually don't have it on the screen, so you might have to turn there or just believe that I'm reading the right place. John chapter 13, verses 33 through 38. And this is the Last Supper, and Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, and he's predicting his death. And he, he says to them, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. And Peter responds in verse 36, In true Peter fashion, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, You can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. He's using metaphorical language to talk about death. He's saying, I'm going to die now, but you're going to die later, and you can't follow me now. And so Peter picks up on this language. In verse 37, he, he, he says, but why can't I come now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. Peter makes a bold promise in this moment. He's saying, giving a promise to Jesus that he can't fulfill. He's telling Jesus, I will stand in for you. You think you're going to die for me? No, Jesus, you don't have to do that. I'll die for you. And we can appreciate the irony of this moment from our vantage point in history, right? Because we know not only did Jesus die for Peter, he died for me, he died for you, he died for all of humanity for all of time. And yet Peter thinks that he can stand in for Jesus. It's laughable to us, but how often are we like Peter? How often do we try to stand in for Jesus? Pastor Fred gave a, a, a perfect um, and a, a, a great uh, 
explanation of the Jewish uh, tradition of sacrifice last week. That was so cool. He, if you weren't here, you got to listen to the podcast. But he talked about the tradition that in order for a person to maintain right standing with God in the Jewish tradition, they had to bring uh, a sacrifice to the temple, put it on the altar, and, and that thing would stand in for them. They would absorb all the judgment, right, all of the wrath of God, and it would be slaughtered there, and then they would have right standing with him. And it couldn't be just any old lamb, any old sheep. It had to be perfect, spotless. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying on the cross. He, he was that lamb, the, the only acceptable, spotless, perfect lamb that God would accept for all of humanity. And so when Jesus or when Peter says, I- I'll stand in for you, he-, he does what so often we do, right? We come to church, and rather than accepting the fact that we need a perfect spotless lamb to, to absorb our-, our judgment, right, to get us in right standing with God, we attempt to be one, right? We, we try to clean ourselves up before we come in, try to look all perfect, try to look righteous. And we put on this, this veneer, we put on this uh, a front that we're perfect, that we're righteous. We're the spotless lamb, right? How often do we try to work hard for a righteousness so that God will accept us? Whenever you do that, you're doing what Peter did here. You're saying, hey, Jesus, it's cool. I'll stand in for you. I think Peter's uh, moment here was more than just a passionate display of affection, of love for Jesus. I think when, when Peter blurted out, hey, I'll die for you, what he was doing was prideful. It was a prideful attempt to match Jesus's love. He said, I know that you agape me. Well, guess what? I'm going to agape you. I, I, I love you so selflessly, and I love you so selflessly that I'll give you my life. I'll match your love for me. And so Jesus laughs in verse 38, and he says, Peter, you think you'll die for me? You won't even uh, acknowledge that you know me. You won't even admit that you know me. Just tomorrow, uh, uh, you'll be in a crowd of people, and three times you'll deny that you know me. And so, of course, Jesus' prediction comes true. Peter's asked three times, hey, do you know Jesus? Do you hang out with that Jesus guy? And he says, no. Not only does Peter not live up to Christ's level of love, not only does he not match his love, he fails pretty miserably. And so taking all of that into perspective, and fast-forwarding back into John chapter 21. We're here on the beach, and Jesus is having a conversation with Peter. (coughs) And I like to think about this moment as like one of the first altar call moments. When Jesus asks Peter, hey, do you agapeo me? He already knows he can't. Peter's made that promise once before in a moment of passion, maybe in the middle of worship, right? God, I'll give my life for you. I'll live perfect after this church, this service tonight, right? I'll give you everything. I'll, I'll be righteous, right? And then 
Jesus asks him in this moment, hey, do you agape me? Do you really, can you really live up to that level of love that you promised you could? And Peter responds correctly. He says, no, but I can phileo you. I can give you a human love. I, I know now the limits of my humanity. I, I can't. And so Jesus asks again, hey, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me like up here, like God love? Like, can you, can you match my love like you, you thought you could? And Peter says, no, I can't. I can only phileo you. And then something incredible happens, something amazing. Jesus, the third time around, lowers his language of love. I've always wondered why that was. Why, why didn't Jesus expect for Peter to say agape? Why didn't Jesus expect for Peter to raise himself up to Jesus's level? It's because Jesus knew he couldn't. And he was setting this moment up as an altar call moment in history for Peter to get real and get right with God. To say, I can't, I can't. I can only phileo you. And so, so Jesus does the most beautiful, amazing thing. He comes down. He says, fine, then will you phileo me? And Peter says, yeah, I will. I will. I can do that. That's what Jesus said to Peter thousands of years ago. And it's the same thing he's saying to us tonight. I'm not expecting you to come up here. I'm not expecting you to fill in the gap between your righteousness and mine. I'll come down there to you. I'll lower my language of love to meet you. If only you'll just be honest. I want to invite the band to come back up. So I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. This is how we've been ending all of the the sermons in this series. Got some good news and I got some bad news. Here's the bad news. You need charity. You need charity. None of us, not a single one of us in this room can earn, can gain from our own works eternal life. Not any of us can earn the love of God. We're in need of his charity. There's a gap between our righteousness and his. But here's the good news. The good news is awesome. It's this, that eternal life, it's a gift. God doesn't expect for us to come up to him, right? To make ourselves perfect, to be a spotless lamb. He came down in the form of Jesus Christ to meet us where we're at, to fill in that gap for us. Come on. So as we're close tonight, I want to pray for two people. I want to pray for the person in here tonight who maybe has never accepted the free gift of God's grace. Go ahead and just bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to create just a moment of privacy for everyone in the room. If you've never experienced, never accepted the free gift of God's grace, Maybe you always just thought it was for somebody else. These altar call moments, they're for somebody else, right? I'm good enough. I've always come to church and played by the rules and I'm good enough, right? If you've never 
realize the gap between your righteousness and God. Never had a moment like Peter where you came to him honest, humble, and just said, look, I cannot. I can't do it. I can't come up to your level. You gotta meet me down here. If that's you, I want you to just raise your hand tonight. Just raise your hand. We're not gonna do anything else. I'm just gonna pray for you, but just raise your hand. there's a second person I want to pray for. And this person, maybe you've accepted the free gift of God's grace. You've accepted eternal life. You've accepted his freedom, but you haven't been using it. You're not standing fast in it. When I read off that checklist, there were multiple things on there that you could say, yeah, that's that's me. I'm working for what's free. I know God's given me grace. I know he's given me freedom and acceptance, but for whatever reason, I just can't quit trying to earn his love. If that's you, I want you to just raise your hand right now in this moment. Thank you. I see it. Father God, Father God, God, we come to you like Peter. God, we come to you with what we have, Lord. The truth, just honest, knowing that we're broken people, knowing, God, that even our righteousness, no matter how we stack it up, can never complete the gap between yours and ours, God. We come to you tonight just in all honesty, saying we need you. God, we we come to you tonight with our, our hands outstretched saying, Lord, we'll receive the gift, God, because I perceive the need. I realize that I can't do it on my own. I can't match you, God. Thank you, Lord, for coming down to meet us, Lord. Thank you, God, for bringing us freedom. I pray, God, that as we leave here tonight, we leave feeling free. God, we leave with a confidence in our salvation. God, we leave knowing that you see us through the lens of love and acceptance. And it's not something that we have to work for. God, change our perspective of you. That you not be a a grumpy old tipper in our head, God, but that you just be our Father showering us with gifts, showering us with your love, with your forgiveness, with eternal life, God. We pray all these things. Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to invite you to stand up. If you raised your hand, we've got people in the back who can pray for you. I'll be up here. My wife will be up here. We can pray for you as well. And maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you've got a need and you want someone to pray for you. We've got uh, people to pray in the back. But if you're not going back there, let's worship together.